Great, thank you, Doug. So good morning, everybody. My name is Connor. I'm the trainee here at All Saints. If we haven't met yet, or if you want to chat afterwards, please don't hesitate to come up to me. I don't bite. Also, this is a very long and dense passage, so we'll kind of fly through it. So please be gracious if I don't touch on everything. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your mercy towards us. We ask that your spirit would write these words on our hearts, that we may live by them, think by them, and so be shaped and transformed into the image of your son. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So how often does it feel like you don't have control over your life? It's like maybe you look at the world around you and think, God, are, are you there? <laughs> um, are you still in control? Is everything still in your hand? You probably look at your own life and think the same thing. See, everything that happens in your life and everything that happens in the world is guided by God's gracious and sovereign hand. Every encounter and every interaction you have is guided by God's mysterious providence. Joseph's brothers knew about God's sovereignty, especially given the passage we'll be looking at. They knew something was up. And you see, Joseph also has privileged knowledge and control over his brothers. And the knowledge and control that Joseph exercises over his brothers functions as a microcosm of, what, of God's knowledge and ultimate control overall. The events recorded between Joseph and his brothers capture the characteristics of God's knowledge and control over everything. And ultimately, God's sovereign hand is guiding all of humanity to reconciliation in Jesus Christ. And in this passage, I want us to see, I want, it, I want this passage to help us forgive one another, seek reconciliation, and ultimately be a light for Jesus in the world all while participating in God's sovereign plan. So first, fellowship through food. Fellowship through food. Chapter 43, verses 15 to 34. So the brothers take all the goods, the gifts, and the silver back down to see Joseph again. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he tells his steward in verse 16, take these men to my house, Slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. That was done. The brothers are now terrified. They think they've been found out and are going to be seized and made slaves. So they approach the steward and say, Hey, dude, we don't know how this extra silver got in our bag. So we're going to give it back. And the servant says something interesting to them. In verse 23, he says, it's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Now, what's this about? It seems the steward is saying much more than he knows. See, God has mysteriously provided for his brothers, but we're not told how. And then starting from verse 24, we read that they go into the house. Joseph comes in. They hand him all their gifts. They make small talk. Joseph asks how his father is, and they say he's alive and well. 
Joseph looks around and he sees Ben, his only other biological brother. In verse 29, he says, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? He said, God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph is then deeply moved to the point where he withdraws to a private room to weep. Here we also have a moment where a character is saying more than he knows. God has been gracious to all of the brothers. God's hand has brought them all together once again. Starting in verse 31, we see Joseph recover, come back out, give the orders to serve the food, and all of them sat down and were served. In verse 33, the men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. And they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Astonishing, isn't it? As far as we've read, the brothers have not told anybody who is who and how old they are. They look at each other and they think they know something's up. But more importantly, when was the last time these brothers had a meal together? Back in chapter 37, the last time these brothers ate a meal was before they sold Joseph. They threw him into the dry well, sat down to have a meal as merchants walked by. The last time they ate with Joseph, they hated him. And here they are, unknowingly sharing a meal with him. What a mighty act of God to bring together this shattered family over a meal. Meals symbolize wholeness, peace, well-being, reconciliation. There's just something beautiful about sharing a meal with others, isn't there? Especially when we've been wronged. It's so simple. Food provides a way to reconciliation unlike anything else. And as those who follow Jesus, we are all invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the feast of ultimate reconciliation. We're all invited to the feast, the feasts of feasts. How often did Jesus sit down to eat in the Gospels? Oftentimes he sat down with people who were at odds with him. He sat down and ate with Pharisees. He sat down and ate with sinners. He sought reconciliation even with his enemies. He gave and ate food to people who didn't even value who he was. And as his image bearers, it's only right we do the same. Shouldn't we model this to others? our friends, our family, all those who've wronged us. We're all more inclined to share a meal with those we love than those we don't really love. That's true for me, and I'm sure it's true for a lot of us at moments. But here at this meal, it's, it's just a foretaste of what Jesus did and wants to do through us. Joseph had every right to hate his brothers. Instead, he invited them to a meal, sat them down, and ate with them. 
And this meal points us to God's sovereign plan to redeem all creation. So firstly, fellowship through food. Secondly, testing and desperation. Testing and desperation. Chapter 44, verses 1 to 34. So in verses 1 to 5, Joseph gives them their silver back, but he hides his cup in Ben's sack and gives instructions to his steward. So the steward catches up. Brothers are convinced of their innocence. They say in verse 7, far be it from your servants to do anything like that. And starting in verse 10, we see the steward agree to their terms and he commences the search. The cup is found. And in verse 13, as this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. This confirms their character change. See, at the end of chapter 37, when Jacob, their father, is weeping and mourning over Joseph, he tears his clothes. The brothers don't do that. But here the brothers tear their clothes over Ben. They do not abandon their brother this time. Continuing on in verse 14 and 15, Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? The brothers are desperate, and Judah is now taking responsibility. Jacob has refused Reuben's guarantee of Ben's safety. Simeon was in Egypt, and Levi was absent. And this leaves Judah, the fourth oldest, to lead the brothers. And here he's doing so. Verse 16, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who is found to have the cup. Despite the overwhelming evidence, he protests Ben's innocence. He confesses that their present dilemma is due to God's judgment for prior guilt. Now, this may be ironic, because he does admit guilt for something that he's not guilty for, but if this isn't, he's referring to the crime against Joseph. And if this is so, this is the second time the brothers have confessed this in Joseph's presence. Joseph replies in verse 17, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was, to, who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. But Judah knows that can't happen. It's impossible for them to return to their father in peace without Benjamin. Joseph recreates the situation with him and his brothers from chapter 37. Except this time, it's with Benjamin. He's testing his brothers. In chapter 37, the brothers had control over the life and death of Joseph. Here they have control over the life and death of Benjamin. Judah then goes up to Joseph, tells him everything that has transpired the last time they saw each other. Verses 18 to 34 is the longest recorded speech in Genesis. And Judah mentions his father 
15 times. Judah is attempting to convey to Joseph what his recent actions have done to their father. And it does a powerful work in Joseph's heart. But let's have a look at verse 20. We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Jacob still dots on Benjamin, probably more so now that Joseph has disappeared. But Judah's speech is representative of all the brothers. While Jacob hasn't changed, the brothers have Let's skip down to verse 33 and 34. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. This is the first instance of human substitution in Scripture. Judah so feels for his father that he begs to sacrifice himself for a brother more loved than himself. Their father's favoritism for another brother is the grounds for Judah's self-sacrifice. Their father's favoritism for another brother is the grounds for Judah's self-sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's powerful. And as you read on in Scripture, you will see that Jesus, the ultimate Savior, is from the line of Judah. What a foretaste of Jesus we have here. Judah will stay so that the rest of his brothers may live. Jesus came so that we may have life and live. Judah is willing to offer himself in his brother's sake. And Jesus willingly offered himself for our sake. Despite Jacob's favoritism and sin, Judah is overflowing with love for his father. And despite our sins before God, Jesus is overflowing with love towards us. Now I'm going to be honest with you guys. Um, I get bitter and quite resentful towards my parents. And quite often, um, often unjustly so. I'm like a world. I'm like the world a lot in this regard. Now they do a great job of loving me and my siblings equally, and if they do have a favorite, they hide it very, very well. But you see, Judah and the other brothers had every right to be bitter and resentful towards their father. I bet you Jacob neglected them quite often. He definitely wasn't affectionate enough. He was indifferent to them in a lot of ways. We never see him repent or apologize to his sons for his favoritism. If my parents had frequently behaved like this, no way would you see me behave like Judah. Not a chance. The world is graceless. Everyone lacks mercy for one another. They're all abounding in favoritism. 
And in a lot of ways, they act like Jacob and how Joseph's brothers used to. The world's so quick to anger and resentment and quick to dot on those who love them more and whom they love more. They let bitterness and resentment justify much of their behavior and they want to be vindicated in that. It's even worse when they say to confess Christ as their Lord and Savior. Just one look at American politics is all you need to know. This is not the way of love. Jesus calls us to forgive. He commands us to forgive and love one another. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. We all know who's wronged us and how they've wronged us and how often it's happened. We all keep a tally. And I'm sure I've done stuff to some of you guys that I'm unaware of. You see, Jacob is unworthy of the love that Judah is showing. And we are unworthy of the love that Jesus shows us. But we must strive to live like that. And now full healing may take a long time, but it is by loving enemies and forgiving those who wrong us that Christ can truly shine in and through us. So first, fellowship through food. Secondly, testing and desperation. And third, human agency. Human agency. Chapter 45, verses 1 to 15. Judah's devotion to his father is so strong and his love is so powerful that it completely cracks Joseph open. In verses 1 to 3, Joseph's been broken. He weeps. He reveals himself to his brothers, but his brothers are terrified. Here they are in the hands of the brother who they thought they killed. 20 years. It had been 20 years since they last spoke to Joseph. And 20 years for God to put his perfect plan in place. And what Joseph says from verses 4 to 11 is a testament to the power of God. In verse 5, Joseph directs his brothers to God. He redirects their gaze away from their sin to God's grace. He says, and now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. God directs the maze of human guilt and sin to achieve his good purposes. Through the brother's sin and Joseph's faith, God has delivered a remnant for his chosen people. In verse 7, Joseph, he's saying much more than he knows. He says, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. The word translated as great deliverance signifies the supernatural. It is God himself and God alone that is bringing this plan about. Joseph and his brothers are merely participants in it. And in verse 8, we see Joseph direct his brothers to God yet again. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. 
Joseph alleviates the guilt and shame of his brothers yet again. He directs their gaze to God. Now humans are still accountable for their sins, yet sin is still a part of God's foreknowledge. As strange as that is for us to grasp. But sin is not the end itself. It leads to reconciliation. Verses 14 to 15, we see a true embrace and reconciliation. Joseph then threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. These gestures finally convince his brothers true reconciliation often comes with weeping and embracing. It's hard. So much past tension and trauma and grief laid bare in their emotions towards one another. The rift between the brothers has been bridged. Intimacy and reconciliation have been achieved. Joseph and Judah chose the way of love. Both of them prefigure Jesus. Joseph, as the favorite, was sent to his brothers. He was beaten, sold, and ultimately became their Lord. The same is true of Jesus. Judah's self-sacrificing love for the sake of his father prefigures the atonement of Christ, who by his voluntary and willing suffering restores us to God and to others. In light of Jesus Christ, our sin, shame, and guilt are not a basis for retaliation and bitterness. Joseph, Judah, and Jesus all chose the way of love. Now for the brothers, it took time for them to get there. And for some of us, it may take time to get there as well. But that is what we strive towards. They forgave their enemies of their sins and they sought reconciliation. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you're called to do. Where do you need to let go of bitterness in your life? Where do you need to forgive someone? As the Lord reminds us in the Lord's Prayer, we sin and are sinned against every day. And we're called to forgive just as God has forgiven us in Christ. And as we forgive others, we bring about the kingdom of God on earth. We will be that loving family that God uses to draw all of creation to himself in Jesus. So God's sovereignty is truly a mystery to the human mind. <laughs> We can read about it in, in Joseph's story, but to see it play out in our lives is, is quite strange. And we see it work itself out in fellowship through food, and through testing, desperation, and through human agency. See, God guided all these events to reconcile Joseph and his brothers and ultimately preserve his promise to Abraham. I wanted us to see how this passage could help us forgive one another seek reconciliation, and ultimately be a light for Jesus in this world. See, God's hand directs all the confusion of human guilt towards one gracious goal. 
All the episodes in the Joseph story contribute to demonstrating how God's purposes are ultimately fulfilled through and in spite of human deeds. From a worm's eye view, this narrative reads like a nightmare. This could have made Joseph acidic or a nihilist. But he chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. This enables him to forgive and encourage his brothers to do the same. Sin must be seen within the context of God's eternal purpose. And the believer can count on God to accomplish his good pleasure, regardless of what people intend. These scenes expose to us the anatomy of reconciliation. It is about loyalty to a family member in need, even when he or she looks guilty. Giving glory to God by owning up to sin and its consequences. Overlooking favoritism, offering up oneself to save another. Demonstrating true love by concrete acts of sacrifice that create trust. Discarding control and the power of knowledge in favor of intimacy, embracing deep compassion, tender feelings, sensitivity, and forgiveness, and talking to one another over a meal. A dysfunctional family that allows these virtues to embrace it will become a light to the world. And that is what the church is to be, and that is what we as Christians are called to do. Let's pray. Father, we confess when we, when we do not live how we ought. Father, when we are so driven by bitterness, resentment, and the wrongs that people have done to us that we sometimes we cannot even muster a simple thank you or a simple embrace. Thank you for Joseph's love for his brothers. Father, thank you for Judah's love for his father and his brothers. Thank you for Jesus, your son, who loves us and gave himself up for us so that we might have life, eternal life. Father, help us to live each day being a light to the world, just as Joseph, Judah, and Jesus are. 
Father, that through us and by the power of your spirit, Jesus may shine forth like a bright star and that you may bring all the world to yourself. I pray this in your son's holy and glorious name. Amen.